From state leaders to Haiti to robots, this is Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Hey guys, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We got some interesting things to talk about on a Friday. Vince, what do we have? So much. I want to talk about a couple of state leaders because I know there's one guy in particular you're interested in talking about, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick. Get to him in just a moment. But first, let's start with California, where yeah. Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a recall threat. Uh, if, if you had asked me a couple months ago, is it likely that Gavin Newsom would be recalled? My interp- my impression was no. It doesn't seem very likely at all. He's you know he's a Democrat in a in a Democrat state. It seems pretty likely he's going to be able to stick it out. But as we are seeing the numbers here, even left leaning publications are beginning to think, woof, this thing could be close. Especially with a lot of Democrats in California, it seems like kind of unenthused to actually vote in this recall at all. But many of Gavin Newsom's detractors, oh, they're fired up. Yeah, I think that Gavin Newsom is definitely in a, in a difficult position right now. And, you know, knowing some people out in California, even, you know, some Democrats they're they don't love Gavin Newsom. You know, uh, they're not sitting there and and high fiving over Gavin Newsom. They're not excited <laughs> about him. What's not to um, love? I, I don't think that they are they want to recall. But again, it's going to be about getting people excited and getting them to the polls to block this recall. Um, I don't think I mean, I think Republicans just want this victory in California, and that would be a big one for them uh, to reclaim the governor's uh, mansion in California uh, and maybe even have implications, you know, going down the road if they have a successful governor, a successful Republican governor. Perhaps, you know, they're not going to win California in a presidential race, but they can start to make some inroads. So I think that that is the the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like Larry Elder is one of the leaders on the Republican side, uh, but he's got some baggage right now uh, with some of the comments that he's made about women and his ex-girlfriend. I don't know if we can get a picture of of him with his or his ex-fiance says that he pointed a gun at her while he was high. Um, Hmm. Now, I don't think the high part is going to mess, you know, make people angry in California, but I definitely think the gun part, uh, waving a gun at a woman and he's, uh, while simultaneously uh, making it seem like uh, violence against women is exaggerated. Um, I think I have a couple of quotes here that I found uh, that he had stated that certainly are not going to make him popular amongst uh, a lot of women. Uh, He said, glass ceiling. Ha, what glass ceiling? Women. Women exaggerate the problem of sexism. I think there are going to be a lot of women that have an issue with that. And of course, he said blacks exaggerate the significance of racism, which I'm sure a lot of Republicans are going to be like, yeah, I love hearing that from a black guy. But uh, I don't think that that's going to get a lot of people who are going to be enthused with that um, in a state like California that is majority people of color. Um, so he's he's definitely got some baggage there. You know, if the gun thing is true um, and some of the things that he said about um you know, uh, women, he said he talked about the women's march mm-hmm. and said that the women who were involved in the women's march were too fat or too ugly to be uh, sexually assaulted. He deleted that tweet, um, but he called the women in the women's march, which had like, what, like 500,000 people or something crazy. He said that they were all obese. Uh, so I think he's got some baggage that is not really going to excite um, a lot of people, even Republican women, because I think Republicans 
They may not be trying to make En-ROADS, I think, uh, you know, probably not with people of color. It doesn't seem like it. But I think with women, they've mm. really tried to get that suburban woman vote. That was a big uh, issue with the Trump administration. And honestly, I think we would probably be, be talking about President Trump right now uh, if he were able to motivate women in the suburbs, but he wasn't yeah. able to do that. And I think that someone like Larry Elder, when you can, as a Democrat, start putting his face up there as one of the mm -hmm. leaders of the party, I think that's going to hurt them. So on the Larry Elder thing, what little I've seen about this, I know he denies, right, the allegation by the ex-girlfriend. Yes, uh, he does. So, so obviously, this is the kind of thing where, you know, you have to figure he out says, what's true says. or what's not. Right. Right. Um, and the other thing that, as you laid it out, so he said that uh, sexism against women isn't a big deal in the United States. Um, I think there's a lot of data to support that, that sexism against women is not a major issue in the United States. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of data to support that. I mean, the majority of people graduating college easily, women, uh, women are, certainly are, are doing better than literally ever. Men are slipping dramatically in the United States, life expectancy plummeting, uh, the joblessness rising. I mean, there's... There's a lot of issues. I, you know, I, I get, obviously, when you look out for the vulnerability of women broadly, that makes sense. But the extent to which we should constantly refer to one gender as a victim class, I think you have to be careful about that. I, I think there's a lot of truth to, to that general summation of what Larry Elder said, that sexism against women isn't a big problem in the United States. I agree with that. All right, well, let's let's look at uh, and, you know, I could if we have time, you know, I'll try and look up the statistics as as we speak. But sure. Uh, women in executive positions, women CEOs, mm -hmm. women, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the other thing he, he downplayed is or he actually endorsed pregnancy discrimination here, according to CNN. Uh, he said that working mothers aren't dedicated and available for all hands on deck commitment to work. Um, so I think, and again, I was talking about this more as an electoral thing. I don't right, think that right. women who actually feel this discrimination, I believe that women are discriminated against in the workplace and in other uh, places uh, in the United States. Yeah. And I think it's something we have to address. Okay. Let me ask you then. Let me ask you just because you threw out a, a good example of something that gets debated a lot. Very sure. few women CEOs in like Fortune 500 companies, uh, sure. mostly, mm -hmm. mostly male. Why is why is that disparity evidence of sexism? Why when we when we see so many male CEOs, very few female CEOs, why do we conclude that that's the product of a sexist system? So are, are you suggesting that men are just superior to women? No, that, not at that, all. I'm, wait, I'm not that in a say, meritocracy. Uh, well, let, let me just ask this question. So okay, go ahead. In, in a meritocracy. If we are really talking about a, the United States as a meritocracy, yeah. that you would have an imbalance that stark, as yeah. stark as we have it, um, of women, you know, and, and I think we're, we're about 50-50, right? It's about 50. And there are more women, actually, than men. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, they live longer and so forth. So with more women graduating college, as you stated, and, right, and all right. these things that that somehow we're still ending up with male leadership. Right. So my with question that, to you, the I'm, vast I'm, disparity that we're talking I, about, not, not a small disparity. I'm happy to engage on that. I, my, so my, yeah. my question, though, was why is just seeing that disparity in and of itself evidence of sexism? Like, why do you conclude that it was sexism that played a role in that? So outcome? what my question is, what again, we're, we're asking questions. OK, I'll answer work. it. Fine, fine. If you don't want to answer it, I'll answer your version. Yeah. Um, so some of the research on this 
interesting. I was listening to Heather McDonald and Megan Kelly speaking about this. Oh recently. God. I know that you don't like the first I, problem. I presume you don't like either, but, yeah. um, and one of the things that they were discussing is that there's just, there is a fundamental difference broadly. This is how you statistically look at men and women biologically between the two, two genders. And among the statistical obvious differences is that a lot of women have a take a different inventory of their life. So in other words, like, whereas a man may want to work the 18 hour days necessary to become a fortune 500 CEO and, and literally do it at the expense of everything else in their life and sacrifice everything from, from family involvement to church involvement, to civic involvement that women by and large don't want to make that trade-off. They don't want to abandon all of those things in pursuit of this one thing, because that one thing being the CEO of a fortune 500 company is not a, in and of itself the coveted goal, the coveted. So, so we measure a lot of things in the United States of America based on how much money do you have? That should be the goal, right? Like I think reflexively, a lot of uh, judgments about what the goal in life should be is related to how many dollars you make. But most people, a lot of people don't actually view their lives that way. They view it based on what brings them satisfaction, how much they, you know, what's good for their families. So there are a tremendous amount of trade-offs in life. As you know, we all deal with them. And we have to make legitimate decisions about, do we sacrifice our families in order to pursue something for ourselves? Do we sacrifice those things that we are talented at? But you know what? That would consume way too much of my time at the expense of. So this is, so what I, I guess the reason I'm asking this is how do we divide self-selection? That is the, the, the driving factors that lead men and women to certain outcomes versus prejudice. Like how, like how confident are you that prejudice plays a role in describing the numbers that we have when we look at the disparity between men and women CEOs. I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident. Uh, I think women um, are driven to want leadership positions like any other person is driven to, to want leadership positions. And also, I will say that there is some of this uh, embedded in our culture in terms of, and I, I think you do have a point. You know, I'm not going to completely dispel everything you said. Um, I think you do have a point that we rear women uh, to make their goals things like marriage, you know, uh, child rearing, um, things that aren't necessarily natural to women. But we we say, hey, this is what you should want in life. You know, rather than with men, we, we give them different, we socialize them differently socialize them for competition, socialize them uh, to want career advancement, socialize them to, to value money. Uh, and I don't necessarily think either is, is all good for either side. Right. Um, and, and there are some, you know, I think there are other countries that are taking different routes. For example, you know, you can go to Scandinavia, you get parental leave, not maternal leave, uh, but you get parental leave. So mm -hmm. you get 12 total months. Uh, either parent can take however much they want. So it could be four months for the father and eight months for the mother. Um, you know, it could be the exact opposite. It could be nine months for the father, three months for the mother. Um, so I think that there are things embedded in our culture um, that may support some of what you're saying. But I think that that's also sexism. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily taking sexism out of it. That actually is saying that our sexism is even deeper than just when you enter the workplace or well, when you enter uh, when you enter into um, you know a job interview. 
But I also think that there is in our society that we uh, are made to assume a male leadership. Um, and that because of that assumption of male leadership, that a lot of times women, qualified women, overqualified women uh, get left behind. And, and one thing that I know you will acknowledge is some of the sexual discrimination and sexual harassment. If you are not taken seriously and you are treated as uh, you know, an object in terms mm -hmm. of your body in the mm -hmm. workplace, which we have plenty of evidence for, we saw a governor just get expelled by, for that. We've seen other cases where politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, have been rightfully accused of yeah. uh, sexual harassment. Um, so if we know that that is, is for real, that people aren't being treated as equals in the workplace, that they're being treated as bodies, people think they can touch them and certain things like that. Right. I think that that is evidence of sexism, not only in the workplace, but, but societally. And again, you and I have daughters, right? Yeah. So one of the things um, that you see and, and you and I, I think we had a brief conversation. We laughed about it. But like I said, our daughters, you know, are, are raised to watch Beauty and the Beast and, you know, uh, Sleeping Beauty and all these things where the goal is essentially um, to get a man, to get a good man. You know, our, our sons, or at least my son, doesn't watch that kind of stuff. He watches stuff about competition mm -hmm. and, you know, being a strong warrior. Those are the, the kinds of things that, that he socialized. And, you know, of course I try to mix it up, but right. the, the socialization is hard with that. So I think that, again, sexism isn't just a problem once you get into the workplace, it's a larger societal problem. Yeah. So in that regard, I will acknowledge everything that you said. Yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing that sexism exists. I just, the extent to which, like the starting point for our conversation here was mm -hmm. how big of it, how big, of an issue is it in our society? Is it uh, is it a crisis? And I, I definitely don't think it is. I don't think it's a crisis. Are there things that you know, we can improve? Absolutely. Are there sexual power dynamics between men and women that head in both directions? Totally. Uh, and we talk a lot about the extent to which men exploit their power over women who are subordinates to them. Uh, and that is an abuse of power, clearly. Uh, but of course, there's things go the opposite direction too. women will use sexuality for advancement. That's absolutely true. It'd be stupid for people not to acknowledge that. Um, so, I mean, we live in an interesting and complicated society. I guess the one other element that I'd inject here is, um, you know, you talk about this is the nature versus nurture argument, right? So we in, in our culture, the extent to which they, they absorb images, people absorb images and movies and entertainment that, and and reading that helps make them formulate their ideas of what they need to be as a man or as a woman. There's also, there, but there also plays a tremendous role, our biology, our biology, if you having, having children, me having my daughter, you recognize things in your kid that have nothing to do with the, like the outside forces, including your own parenting that make them who they are. I mean, if like, if you put little boys and little girls around each other, I remember the first time I, we had little boys over to the house. For instance, my daughter was like maybe three, four years old. And there were some boys that were around that same age. I had no idea, and being a man, the extent to which it was already built into a, a little boy's mind that everything in the house needs to become a projectile. 
Like I was, I walked down in my basement and there was stuff just flying across my basement. And I was like, what is going on? I'm so used to like my, my daughter and her little friends who are girls and they can play nicely. And there's not all of this chaos. You bring some boys into the equation. It's like, boom, all of a sudden the wolves are in the house. And I'm like, okay, everyone just needs to settle down. <laughs> uh, and there's, there's clearly bio, you know, biological imperatives there. Like men and women are just wired differently. And that's cool. That's cool. This is why we complement each other. We have, we have imperatives towards one another, um, and we and we succeed when when we work together. So I, I think with all of that in mind, is we should just like as a society not pretend as if men and women are exactly the same. What an uninteresting world that would be. Um, we're different, and for good reason, and it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are men who are different too. I mean, I, I've had boys um at my house yeah uh and you know my youngest daughter loves to toss things you know what i mean i mean she's got an arm you know what i mean like she can she can literally you know she's not even she's two and a half and you know she can probably throw a baseball like 10 feet already so i mean maybe maybe farther and it's you know it's just uh you know, something that she has and she enjoys throwing things and catching right. balls and, and, and all of that. Like she doesn't enjoy playing with, you know, I mean, she plays with everything literally, but so I, I'm not sure that I've seen necessarily everything that you're talking about because I've seen boys come and they sit down and they play nicely and they, you know, they grab their yeah, transformer toys and, you know, of they course. sit in a corner and, you know, it's just like some kids are gregarious and some kids want to be alone and, you know, there, there's, I think just people are different. Um, and we, I think a lot of times we don't notice, this is the thing about how you socialize right. children. As soon as they can understand language, which is probably like at 18 months or maybe even earlier, children start to understand language. And as soon as they can do that, whether you know it or not, you are socializing them. You are literally imparting some of your values upon them and that's not always a bad thing yeah but there are times of course when we're talking about gender there are a lot of ideals you know that we put um like even i have to watch myself you know with my son because you know with my daughter she falls and she cries and i pick her up and i console her right you know what i mean my son even since he was young i was like look stop crying yeah, you know, I, I had to I have to literally be cognizant not to tell him, look, you know, stop crying, you know, toughen up. Yeah. Um, you know, but and and part of it, it, it's a tough thing as as a father, because, you know, I also realize that that is going to be an expectation of him. So one of the things that I'm trying to teach him is, you know, because he, he gets sometimes he gets angry and things like that. And I'm like, look, you know, son. Yeah, I go on Fox News and the Daily Caller. I want to punch a lot of people, but I don't. <laughs> I control my anger. This you is have, why we're on. This is why we're on opposite ends, by the way. Right, right. We and can't be in the same room. Right, and why we're remote. But yeah, I mean, again, like, but seriously though, like, you have to know, like, it is your responsibility to control your emotions, and yeah. you know that is something that's going to be expected more of him as a man than it will sure. be of my daughters. And that, I mean, now is that sexism? I would say yes. 
<laughs> you know, and sexism, and this is one of the things that, you know, I've tried and you can't do this in this kind of format, even though we're kind of long form. Yeah. You know, you can't really express when I talk about white supremacy as a system. One of the things that I that I impart upon people and upon students is white supremacy hurts white people. Sexism, a large amount of white people. And one of the things that I tell them about patriarchy and sexism is that it hurts men too, because it creates these expectations. You know, men have nowhere to put their emotions. And then what happens? Sometimes it becomes an outburst of violence or, or other things. And, you know, people have written books. Why do men commit these violent acts and women don't? Why are all these, you know, people who are committing, you know, school shootings and mass shootings and all that, why are, or the acts of terror, why are they largely men? Uh -huh. You know, why is it largely men in some of the hate groups and things like that? Yeah. And why is it largely men in prison? Why is it largely men in prison? And, and a lot of this, uh, you know, you can say, you know, I, I hear the argument that some of this is biological. Men have more testosterone, blah, 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 um, <laughs> which I would argue a lot of a lot of that aggression and anger comes not from testosterone, but from cortisol, but stress hormones. But at any rate, um, I, I would say that, you know, some of this is the way that patriarchy puts certain expectations upon men and it actually hurts men. You know, it doesn't, it helps them. In fact, you know, in the sense that we think, oh, this person's more suited to be a school principal. Mm -hmm. Whereas this person is more suited to be a math teacher. You know, this person should be the leader. You know, uh, this person is more suited to be uh, president of the United States. This person is more suited to be CEO or police chief. Um, or fire chief. But so it helps men in, in that regard. But for a, the working class man, you know, who worked on an auto assembly line, and was expected to provide for his family. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden that job gets cut. And he's going home frustrated, right? You know, it doesn't patriarchy actually hurts that man. And that's the large majority of men, you know, and this is why when we when people are like end patriarchy, it's not just to help women, it's it's actually to help humanity and white supremacy. It's not just to help black people, because white supremacy actually hurts white people in a lot of ways. And I could go into a whole thing about that, but I'll, I'll spare you. Um, so these are these are things that, you know, I, I agree with you when you talk about, you know, men are the ones committing suicide or men, you know, uh, are dying of preventable diseases earlier. Um, I think a lot of that, the root is patriarchy. And though women are hurt by sexism, men can also feel the effects of it. And this is why we need to root it out. And if we're going to go with competition, make it a fair competition where we assume everybody is suited for leadership until they prove that they are not. You know, th there's another part that I'm thinking about as you're saying all this. It seems like our culture has devalued masculinity. Do you get that sense? Like, I know you're talking about the patriarchy, but my sense is like that we're not actually headed in a direction where we're advocating for patriarchy. It's like the society is actually broadly, the, the phrase we often hear is toxic masculinity, but mm -hmm. it's basically a blanket, seems like denunciation against masculinity broadly. Like there are, there are masculine values, right? Chivalry is a masculine value. It's, a, it's and a great one, you know, strength and stoicism and logic and, you know, all the things we associate with masculinity 
I mean, these are good things and we should encourage people to be strong and self-reliant and to take care of their families and to, you know, just to, to feel an obligation, sense of duty. Um, these are all very good things. And our society seems to so be abandoned. So with chivalry, um, yeah. the thing is chivalry is, a, is, is really nice. Of course, when I go out on date night with my yes. wife, I open the door, you know, the car door. And, you know, when I see women walking up to a door, I open the door. By right. the way, all you women out there, I expect to thank you when I hold the door for you. <laughs> You know what I mean? Next time I'm going to grab you by the collar, pull you back out and close the door behind you. You know, thank you. That's the polite thing to do. But at any rate. Um, this patriarchy is getting out of control. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just out of control. But here, here's the thing, though. Uh-huh. With chivalry, the problem with chivalry is that it is based on negative assumptions. It was based on the idea that women are too weak to pull a door. You know what I mean? It's based on all of these kind of uh, ideas about women that are beyond antiquated. And there are things about chivalry, you know, I'm with um, some of these new age dudes who are like, yo, you got a job? You know, we we don't know each other like that. We ain't out on a date. You can pay, you know, we can split it or you can pay this time and I can pay next time. Like I've seen dudes literally dating women who make more money than them going broke, trying to take them out on dates. And I'm like, bro, she invited you out on a date and then expected you to pay for it? Uh -huh. <laughs> like To me, that doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? So I, I think that there are elements about uh, chivalry that to me are dated and that should be updated. You but know what I mean? Don't you think women are looking for that too, though? So, I do. I mean, a lot of but that, assumptions, but that, you know, are made are made about this, I think, at an academic level. Right. But like but like women are looking for strength and security in, in a man. Of, of course. But that part of that, again, is how we socialize women. You know what I mean? And, and that's what I'm getting back to every kid. And this is why I love like, you know, uh, Moana. You know what yeah. I mean? She was the first princess to not get saved by a dude you know what i mean she came she was the princess and she saved herself and her village mm -hmm. you know what i mean showing that women had the ability to do that she wasn't sleeping beauty she wasn't you know um snow white and we go into a whole thing about snow white <laughs> bring in some things about that who's the fairest and all that and how that leaves uh -huh. a lot of young girls out. But at any rate, the whole thing is that uh, we raise women to think that they should be taken care of. And I, I hear the dudes, I hear dudes out there, you know, uh, I guess this is the conservative side of me here. I hear dudes out there who are like, look, you know, we are equals, which means you know, you can, you can pay your own bill sometimes, you know, you don't need me to pay for your nails. You don't need like, uh, you know, in terms of certain elements of security and, yeah. you know, uh, like in terms of like, you know, keeping someone safe, you know, you're walking down a dark alley. Yeah. I, I get that. You know, I'm the bigger person physically. So, right. you know, I will, I will be the person who will, Hey, you, you know, with, 
the way sexism and patriarchy work with the sexual assaults being largely against women. You know, if one of my colleagues says, you know, hey, hey, Dr. Nichols, or hey, Jason, can you, uh, can you walk with me to the, you know, to my car, you know, because, you know, at the university, right. we've got long ways to walk, and it's late at night, we're working late, you know, and some of us honestly are in there, you know, in the office until, you know, one and two in the morning. If they want me to walk with them to their car because I'm physically bigger and I and a guy is less likely to to test me, you know, yeah, of course, I, I get that. Um, you know, I also know some women that you know I would be like, hey, can you walk with me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, being a being a, a I guess I have to call myself former now, former martial artist. I can tell you some women that, you know, some mugger would pick the wrong one. Yeah. Um, I like those stories. I like when yeah. I like, I like those stories when like uh, female UFC fighters like yeah. end up just like beating a whole group of dudes down. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah they, they got way more than they bargained for. Right. Exactly. But I, I get my, my, my thing is of course, yeah. You know, um, is a, a, you know, someone who exploits people because they see weakness or they see, you know, yeah. someone who is a smaller person. If they see, you know, a big six foot two guy walking with the, the person, they're less likely to, to try something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I get that. That makes sense. So, you know, um, I understand. And, you know, uh, someone who's trying to sexually assault someone. So I understand the, the desire for protection in that regard. Yeah. But there are a lot me, of realms where you shouldn't need protection. You know what me, I mean? I'm, I'm going to let you have the last word on that because I want to jump to another state leader. There's a, a, a guy that I want to show. We mentioned at the top, uh, right. Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, uh, was on Fox News. And I know this caught your attention and you wanted to chat about this. So let's play the clip and then you and I can have a conversation. Here we go. We're coming after your state uh, really quickly here. And as a response, coming after your state yes. because the increased COVID numbers, hospitalizations, deaths are up in Texas. Uh, and there's a direct assault on your governor's policies and your state's policies. Yeah. Very brief response. Yeah. Well, Laura, the, the COVID is spreading, particularly uh, most of the numbers are with the unvaccinated and the Democrats like to blame Republicans on that. Well, the biggest group in most states are African-Americans who have not been vaccinated. The last time I checked, over 90% of them vote for Democrats in their major cities and major counties. So it's up to the Democrats to get, just as it's up to Republicans, to try to get as many people vaccinated. But we respect the fact that if people don't want the vaccination, we're not gonna force it on them. That's their individual right. But in terms of criticizing the Republicans for this, we're encouraging yeah. people who wanna take it to take it, but they're doing nothing for the Afri African-American community that has uh, a significant high yeah number of unvaccinated TikTok people. TikTok videos. So they need we, got to of, yeah. we got a lot of TikTok. Yes. All right, Jason, I know that that caught your attention. Why did it catch your attention? What did you want to talk about with that? Well, I think it was um, disappointing. I mean, I don't know why I would expect to not be disappointed by Dan Patrick. I think, isn't he the guy who said, hey, just sacrifice and and die, you know, if you're a grandparent <laughs> you know, for COVID? Um he said, you know, I think if I recall correctly, it was like early in the pandemic when everybody was locking down. He said, I don't really care. I want to see my grandchildren. It's worth it to me. Uh, yeah, that was I, I don't think he put himself in that. I don't I, don't, I think he said, I know a lot of grandparents. We'll, we'll have to he find did. He did. I know for a fact I, on this one. I, I'm, I'm certain he put uh, himself that, in there. There was the starting point was, yeah, I want to see my grandkids. Yeah, right. But I, I recall him saying, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, 
The latter part of that was I know a lot of grandparents who, who would die so that their kids aren't settled with debt or something to that effect. Gotcha. So, I don't I don't recall that, but okay. Yeah. I'll take okay. your word for it. Yeah. I mean, I could, you know, well, you guys, audience, you can go and check that <laughs> for yourselves. Uh, I still find the guy to be pretty repulsive. But um, just looking at the facts here, um, that's not necessarily what he's saying is, is absolutely false. Um, there are, it is true that there is a lot of, of vaccine hesitancy um, in African-American communities. And I can tell you why, um, and, and we can get into that later. But the truth is, number one, we should not be making this, uh, we should not make vaccines, we should not make masks, none yes. of this, none of these public health measures should be political. Amen. It's idiots like him that make it political. This is public health. This is what people are concerned about is, you know, and, and again, sitting there and trying to dunk on people rather than saying, look, this is what we are as the Lieutenant Governor of Texas. This is what I'm doing in, in the fifth ward of Houston. If mm. I'm worried about African-Americans not being vaccinated, instead of saying we're blaming it on them, it's the black people. Understand that they are residents of your state instead of being an idiot. You know, um, and I have a feeling Lieutenant Dan Patrick's never going to come on our show. But when you said I, I now the way I was notified about this, you texted. I want to talk about what Dan Patrick said uh, about I think about black people and COVID. I thought I always think when people say Dan Patrick, I think they mean the former ESPN sport the, the sports guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Dan, what did Dan Patrick say? What, right. why is he, and he's the, the way, better Dan Patrick, and whatever even though I disagree with him a lot, too. And whatever he said, I like how he says it. Um, uh, but no, so the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, if I can, you know, I kind of think that you might be making the same point Dan Patrick is here, but in, no, in, I'm but, not. But you don't like him. So you, you're prejudiced towards his his position. So let me let me try and explain why I think that. So he, what he's doing is trying to push back against the politicization of COVID, right? Or the vaccine in particular. So you got all these people in the media be like, you know, it's Republicans, Democrats saying it's Republicans who are hesitant, they're not getting vaccinated, and these Republican governors aren't making them do it and aren't imposing these mandates, and Republicans are the reason that this thing's running roughshod across the country. And so Dan Patrick comes along and says, well, wait a second, a gigantic Democrat, Democratic Party voting bloc, Black voters, as he said, somewhere in the vicinity of 90% support for the Democratic Party, is hesitant about the vaccine. We know, according to all the demographic data, that fewer, many fewer Black people than almost any other demographic category are getting vaccinated. So if, if we're going to play the politics of like, oh, it's Republicans, well, then there's a bunch of Democrats who are not being vaccinated. So my sense of this moment or this clip uh, uh, is that he's trying to make the point, stop trying to politicize it. There's enough people to go around who haven't been vaccinated, and the goal should be to get them vaccinated and if, if and obviously while respecting their liberty. Well, uh, I'm going to disagree with you there. Um and I think it was a, a deflection of responsibility for citizens of his state. And I, I also will say that when you look at the facts here, so I'm pulling this up, um, according to this Kaiser Family Foundation mm -hmm. uh, poll, the wait and sees are disproportionately, even though uh, whites um, are 53% of people who want to wait and see about the, the vaccine. And this is published on July 1st, 2021. Uh, whites are 
Blacks are 18%. Latinos are 22%. Um, but the people who are definitely not getting the vaccine are overwhelmingly white. And they're overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, so Democrats' uh, wait and sees are 34%, significant. Um, still Republicans outnumber them, 40, they're 45%. But in terms of definitely not getting the vaccine, Democrats 18%, Republicans 58%. So for him to throw it back at Democrats, I think is again, playing politics, uh, you know? And if he's saying that there are African-Americans that are not uh, getting the vaccine, my question to him is you're Lieutenant Governor. You are the second highest ranking person in the state. What are you doing? You know, instead of saying, hey, Democrats, they vote for you. They're, they're your issue. They're your problem. They're your people who you should uh, promote this vaccine to. We understand. I understand that he said we're not going to force anybody. And I don't think anybody's arguing for someone to hold someone down to a chair and poke them with a needle. But what is he doing, you know, in order to uh, promote this to unvaccinated people and to let them know that it's safe? You know, um, I think that there are lots of Democrats around, you know, Texas and around uh, the country who have made efforts. Um, and I think that there are African-Americans who are skeptical and with good reason. And I and actually I was going to write an op ed for the um, for the Daily Caller. I haven't given it to them yet. Um, oh, mother effer. Sorry, I. I had forgotten my my uh, my login and I had to change it and now it's logged me out of everything in my phone and I had something that I wanted to share but oh. um, you know one of the things that that we see um, in terms of the history and the present mm -hmm. uh, with the medical establishment um, is that black people receive lower quality care. And that's, that's just literally a fact. Um, there have been uh, studies of medical residents and nurses that have shown that they believe myths about Black people, that they experience pain differently. They, there's been a study that says that people believe, medical professionals believe Black people have thicker skin or less sensitive nerve endings they're less likely to get pain medicine. So it's almost as if they don't believe that they have pain. Mm -hmm. They did a study um, of 400 hospitals that has shown that, um, that many African-Americans are not getting quality care in comparison to whites. So, with all of that, the medical establishment is going to say, trust me, uh -huh. I'm going to poke you with a needle. So there's you know, they this... don't have that kind of credibility within the African-American community. You know, when you when you reference all this, that that's definitely the kind of thing that I'd love to know more about. Uh, and I've seen it before. These these studies about pain and the extent to which black patients experience it and whether or not medical professionals think that they're overstating their own pain. Uh, there's also the issue of um, maternal mortality rates among black women. Uh, being higher on average demographically. Um, and those are all, I think, uh, 
important areas of inquiry that deserve uh, more focus. And hopefully we can uh, get some obvious, get some answers to, to why those things happen and, and um, to remedy them. But with all that in mind, there's also myths out there too that are that predominate about uh, medicine among Black Americans. One that I feel like hasn't gotten enough attention. I think it's gotten more attention lately as the uh, medical establishment has tried to get Black Americans vaccinated is the Tuskegee um, mm -hmm. conversation. So every so often this comes up, they're like, well, one of the reasons there's hesitancy among Black Americans is because uh, Blacks were being injected with syphilis uh, and they thought, and, and they didn't know it. And that's in a US government did that to them. That is not true. That, that arrangement of facts is, is not true, but it's one that's out there. And a lot of people believe it. Um, instead, what was, what was going on is that uh, treatment was being withheld. You had people who had syphilis who were basically in a placebo group who thought that they were receiving treatment for it and, and weren't. Uh, and so that story was so, which is obviously horrible, by the way. Just to, Well, just to after they had a cure for the disease yes, yes. for another uh, 30 years. Yes. <laughs> so no, like, let's, let's not understate how no, terrible that was. That's totally right. My, my only point is that the belief that the shot itself is going to inject the disease into people. Right. Is, yeah, is that's a misunderstanding is, yes. is not in any way. Even, even the Tuskegee experiments that they're referring to weren't doing that. Um, and so I think sort of dispelling some of the myths that are out there would be an important, um, you know, public health mechanism. Yeah, I think that there are lots of people. I've seen lots of things where people have tried to dispel those myths. And I just want to come back to uh, the point I was making about the 400 hospitals. And that was really um, had to do with heart disease, uh, where uh, that what they found in the study of 400 hospitals was that Black people received treatments for heart disease that were older, less aggressive, and cheaper. You know, um, so it's not 10 hospitals either. We're talking 400 different hospitals. What's the corollary? Well, I know you don't know the answer and, just by looking at it, but what's the corollary, I would ask, um, between poverty and that treatment? And what's the overlap? So it's like you yeah. wonder what role does, what role simply does, you know, your ability to afford a treatment um, play in the outcome of those numbers? Yeah, I'm sure that it plays um, some role, but, you know, one would think, if you are uh, really sick to the point where you have heart disease mm -hmm. and you are poor, then you probably get Medicaid, which means that your treatment would be covered. You know, so it's not really a, um, a hey, can I pay for this situation? Or at least it shouldn't right. be. Um, I think it's also about the perception that people have about, you know, Black people and have about pain and all of that. And, I, you know... I, I would assume, I, and again, we, we don't know, Black people are certainly more um, uh, represented amongst the poor. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, we can talk about why that is, but, you know, African-Americans are, are, there's a greater portion of poor African-Americans than there are in terms of proportion of whites. There are certainly more poor white people. Right. Um, but it is, I think, uh, what a lot of these studies are saying is that um, there is a perception. So even, so let me just pull up one other statistic. Um, and this was found, uh, it, this was a report, 2005 report from the National Academy of Medicine. And it found that, quote, 
Minority persons are less likely than white persons to be given appropriate cardiac care, to receive kidney dialysis or transplants, and to receive the best treatments for stroke, cancer, and AIDS. According to the report, quote, racial and ethnic minorities receive lower quality health care than white people, even when insurance status, income, age, and severity of the conditions are comparable. Okay. So it's okay. it's something it's something bigger than that, you know, is, is what I'm I'm saying. At least this study, and again, you can uh, of course point out the fact that this is 2005, we're in 2021. Um, but I think a lot of people who were who are thinking about getting uh, poked with a needle were yeah. alive in 2005. Probably have experiences with with the health with healthcare professionals from 2005, and this is something that's also called everyday racism uh, that people experience. Um, that a lot of people don't understand how that actually claims lives and causes people to die earlier. Um, and so, if I'm not going to trust a doctor in a doctor's office because of my past experiences, you think I'm going to trust them in a stadium parking lot with a needle? Probably not. Stadium. So that's a good point. You know, so I, I think that, you know, there are reasons for that. And the medical establishment has to own that. Uh-huh. And they have to really start to remedy these things. And now when we talk about, you know, experimentation and, you know, everyone talks about Tuskegee. Right. But there are cases of uh, we, we talked about it in Puerto Rico, but in North Carolina, um, there's a woman, you know, who her case really got blown up, who was sterilized when I believe uh, when she was 12 years old, um, with no real explanation for it. Um, and, you know, she's speaking out. She didn't know that she had had this procedure because the doctors didn't tell her mm-hmm. and they didn't, you know, tell her mother. And there were other experiments that were done or not even experiments, uh, forced sterilization without people's consent or knowledge. Uh, Some people as young as like 11 and 12 um, in North Carolina and other states where African-American women experience these kinds of things. And so when the government comes along and says, hey, we have another medical procedure for you. um, And of course, you know, we can talk about experimentation of all races, but we know uh, uh, largely, a lot of it is African Americans and Native Americans and Latinos in prisons over time. Going back, you know, we talk about the 1970s, Native American um, experimentation and forced sterilization was crazy. Um, so, with all of that, for the government to come along and say, we're going to poke you with this needle. And again, the argument against that is what I've made on this show a couple of times. Right. The argument against that is, do you think that they are going to, that the government is going to take out a bunch of wealthy white folks in order to get to you? Like, that's what I always say to any of my, my friends who are vaccine hesitant, mm-hmm. you know, or vaccine ambivalent. I'm like, look, they're not going to take out, that's not how this works. Wealthy white people are not collateral damage. Now, if you had said poor white people, maybe but not wealthy white people. They're not going to make them collateral damage. And if you saw in Florida, one of the things that was being reported was that a lot of people 
wealthy white people were driving to poor black neighborhoods to get the vaccine because the lines were shorter. Hmm. You know, so if anything, that's not how this works. Trust me, it's safe. Right. You right. know, uh, they, they would not be taken out a lot of other people. Um, but again, Dan Patrick, getting back to Dan Patrick, he's wrong because the people, it is clear, the people who say, and I don't think we should make this political, but he made it political here. The people who say that they are definitely not getting the vaccine, not wait and see, you know, because I understand, I actually really understand people who say, oh, it doesn't matter, black, white, whatever. Mm-hmm. I really understand people who might be like, you know what, this was developed really quickly. You know what I mean? Let me just kind of hang back and see what happens here. Um, because usually they observe vaccines for longer. Um, but right. I think, you know, based on these statistics from the Kaiser Family Foundation, nonpartisan, the people who are most likely to say, I'm definitely not getting it under any circumstances are Republican. Yeah. So own that. You know, own it, say, look, we have people in our state of all political backgrounds, racial backgrounds who are who are hesitant. I would like to work with Democrats uh, and others in getting as many people vaccinated so that we can beat this virus. You know, I used to be a political speechwriter. <laughs> okay. Let yeah. me. Uh... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I just want to just because I, I know we're going to run out of time and I don't want to do that without hitting uh, some of these other topics too that you and yeah. I wanted to talk about. One of them was Haiti. Um, and, uh, you know, Haiti just suffered the assassination of its leader uh, mm-hmm. not long ago. And then subsequently uh, in the past week or so, uh, a devastating earthquake, adding yet another um, a gigantic catastrophe to Haiti's history of them. Uh, you, I know you wanted to hit this as it relates, especially to uh, having Haitian refugees come into the United States and what the Biden administration is doing. Right. I I, I hope uh, our um, our viewers weren't turned off with us talking about race, because I'm sure there's some of them who are probably turned off uh, talking about gender and race. But I'll tell you this, the ones who stuck with us, you're going to hear me criticize the Biden administration. <laughs> um, I think that the Biden administration um some of what they're doing in terms of, um, you know, deportations and continuing with deportations to Haiti, Haiti, which not only has political instability, um, and we, you know, I think there's there's debate about continuing with Title 42. I think a lot of people, particularly Republicans, think that Biden is just letting everybody in the country and flying them to different places. That's actually not happening. Title 42 is still in place. Um, but, you know, a lot of this is being enforced against, you know, Haitians. And, you know, we can debate that. I, I, I get why people would say, you know, remain in Mexico or we're not going to let you in. The one thing that I think is wrong is deporting people who are in this country already to a country who is, you know, politically unstable, just had a major earthquake that killed 2,000 people. Um, financially unstable, and at, on top of that, just had a tropical storm hit the, the exact area where the earthquake hit. And so uh, one of the things that we saw when we did this earlier in this country by deporting these people um, is that we saw a cholera outbreak that claimed more lives, 
you know, some of it was brought, you know, and made worse by the NGOs that were there. We've seen other bad things happen in Haiti. And actually, one of the things that bolsters the Haitian economy, if you can uh, stabilize the, the political situation, which is up to Haitians, not up to us, but if they stabilize that, the remittances from the Haitian diaspora actually bring about $3 billion into Haiti. You know, so by deporting those people, you're actually cutting off aid to Haiti that's coming from Haitians. Um, so I think that that's a mistake right now. Mm -hmm. um, continuing with, with our deportations um, to a country, even though the Biden administration will answer that they have given temporary protected status to 100,000 people in the Haitian, um, you know, uh, to the Haitians in the United States. Uh, which was a reversal of the Trump policy, which they tried to take away temporary protected status from Haitians and from Salvadorans, I believe. But the Biden administration reversed that, and that was good. But continuing with, with some of the deportations is only worsening their situation, mm -hmm. making them more desperate, causing more of a clog at our border because a lot of people are coming up through Mexico. Um, and a lot of Haitians and Cubans are coming up through Mexico, and, and you and I had discussed this before, and they're ending up at the border. So it's not just Central Americans. Then you've got Haitians on top of that and all of that. So if anything, we want to stabilize Haiti uh, by giving them you know, whatever help that we can provide. And I know the Biden administration is doing that. But one of the mistakes that they're, that they're making is continuing with the deportation. So I, I kind of want to get your perspective on that. I guess, uh, on the right and see what you think about that. Well, I, I'd have to look at the numbers to know what the percentages are, but it seems to me that the Biden administration is being tougher on Haiti for some reason than it is on other countries. Right. Uh, you know, Central American migrants, by and large, like you said, there is some Title 42 deportations going on, but there are hundreds of thousands of Central American migrants getting into the United States right now, and they are being moved around the country. Not, not as far as I can tell, not the same impact with Haitians attempting to get across our border or get into the United States. Um, you've got the, so you've got the deportations going on. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there are a lot of really dramatic, you know, especially these natural disasters that have hit Haiti that would invite uh, the ongoing generosity of the United States, maybe in the form of a temporary deportation moratorium. But here's what I think we should have, Jason. I do think we should have rules. That's all. It's just that we should, it should be really clear to foreign nationals what's going to happen when you try to get into the United States if you're not eligible to do that. And deportation has to continue to be a thing that we do. Um, and, and because, you know, obviously our, our country, first and foremost, should look out for the rights of its citizens and the well-being of its citizens. And then where we can be generous, we will be. Um, but I'm not, I'm not offended that we have a deportation system. I think it's perfectly fine that we deport people. Um, back to their home countries, or at least out of ours. And then finally, you know, not every single person who's looking for a new life in a different country needs to come here. They can go a lot of other places, but obviously the United States being um, as, as wealthy and as appealing and as um, attractive as it is, so many of the world's immigrants want to come here. They, they'd prefer to be here and I, I get that. I respect that preference. I would probably have the same preference. I, I know I would um, in this theoretical. But at the same time, there's a, it, there's a big planet and there's a lot of other countries that people can go to if they don't want to stay in theirs. So I, I would say that um, 
again, I think the answer to that is, so you are correct that we do need laws and, and this is why we need some sort of comprehensive immigration reform. We need Congress to work on it. Um, but the, the thing that I would say is that the Haitians are following the law when they come in and they seek asylum. So anybody who seeks asylum, that is a legal process. Um, and I think if there's any place in the Western hemisphere right now where you have a legitimate claim to, to asylum in all of the Americas, it's probably Haiti. You know, in terms of the political instability, the violence, the natural disasters, uh, I think Haiti probably has more of a claim to, uh, uh, to asylum. And the reason people come to the United States is because the United States has fair asylum laws. A lot of Haitians actually try to go to the Dominican Republic, which is right next to Haiti. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this idea that Haitians are just skipping all these countries is not true. Um, but the Dominican Republic has very strict immigration laws um, and is very, very... Um, yeah, they have a history of, of anti-Haitianism um, and they really are very strict with, you know, who they will let claim asylum. I don't, I'm not even sure that they have an asylum system. And with that asylum system, I'm pretty sure they're not letting Haitians in. Um, they did have a lot of undocumented Haitians. There was a, you know, at one point there was an estimate somewhere between half a million and a million. Um, and they did everything they can to deport people back um, to Haiti. And in a lot of cases, that worsened a lot of the issues that Haiti was having. Was having. Mm -hmm. But so I, I, my, my point in bringing that up was just to say that there are people, you know, that they want to go to places that are uh, linguistically similar, even though, you know, Haitians speak Creole and Dominicans speak Spanish. Um, they want to go places that are culturally similar. Sure. Um, and they want to go places that are physically similar or, or, you know, close in terms of proximity. So a lot of them want to go, you know, to the, to their neighbor. And maybe if the, if their country situation improves, they'd be able to come back, but that's not an option. The United States has a more fair asylum process. So, uh, and more organized, better organized asylum process. You can't go to the border in the Dominican Republic and say, you know, I'd like to apply for asylum. Right. They're going to be like, you'd like to apply your ass back to Haiti. <laughs> um, and so I think that that's part of the, why we're having these Haitians um, who are going to the U.S. border uh, yeah. rather, rather than to some other places. Now, as far as, um, you know, the way the Biden administration is, is handling this, um, I don't know that they're being, I think that you and I disagree on how many people are being held um, and, and, you know, by Title 42, that somehow that it's gotten so much more relaxed under this new administration. And I, I don't believe that that's true. I think one of the things that is happening is that they are testing people for COVID um, before they're allowed across the border. 
Um, at least that's the way I was understanding it in, in the article that you and I both read mm-hmm. was that they're testing people for COVID before they actually cross into the United States. And then they're allowing them to go through the legal process that we have here in the United States. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot more people being blocked by Title 42 than, than a lot of Republicans want to acknowledge because they realize that, you know, immigration is a lightning rod. Um, and let's let's be honest, in light of what we've seen with the latest census, the 2020 census, um, I think that there are a lot of people who uh, are concerned about the political future um, of certain parties, or I think of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't understand. This is why I'm like Republicans. If I were a different person, I would say, if I were just completely for sale, I'd say Republicans, you, you, you guys need to hire me. You know what I mean? Because how about challenging for those, uh, for those votes, you know, that you think are going to happen in the future when all these uh, Central Americans and Haitians and all that, you'd be surprised how many of them based on religion, 80%, believe it or not, 80% of uh, Haitians are Roman Catholic. I know right. you watch movies and they're sticking pins and dolls, but that's not really what it is. 80% of Haiti is Roman Catholic. So you think you can't, Republicans can't make an argument to Roman Catholics? You know, no, you think of course. You, no, you just, of make... course. That, that, that's totally true. In fact, I think a lot of Democrats and Republicans get that a lot of this fundamentally wrong. There's a lot of assumptions. You hear Dick Durbin say it recently. He thinks that this will all result in permanent Democrat majorities. It's like insane. The the difference really is like, you know, uh, first, uh, you know, recent arrivals and first generation immigrants, especially from places like South and Central America, tend to be more um, uh, socially conservative. And uh, you're, you're right. I think Republicans could play for some of those votes. The problem is like once you get to like the second generation kid who's been through the college system in the United States and ruined their minds. Uh, then oh my that's, God. <laughs> that's, that's when you lose them. Um, let me, let's uh, jump to another issue here uh, before we go. Um, I'm like, almost, I am basically out of time with you, unfortunately, but let me just play this video. This is Elon Musk, Elon Musk <laughs> introducing a robot. He wants to build a robot that's going to help with all sorts of tasks. Tell me this is not the scariest thing you've ever seen. Okay, so obviously that is not a real robot. That's that's a that's a person dressed in a unitard, uh, standing on dancing on stage. This reminds me of. Did you ever see the show Community? Uh, the the mascot for the school was the human being because they didn't want to choose anything that would offend anybody. So they dressed this guy up in like a white unitard and and drew a mouth on him and, a, and two eyes, and they called him a human being. That's what this guy looks like uh, dancing on this stage. But Elon Musk says in a couple of years we could have these robots helping us around the house. Yeah, it, it reminds me. Did you ever see the movie Maximum Overdrive? No, it was like an 80s movie and it had um, 
I want to say that it it was like one of the sequels to Mad Max. And it was gotcha. like, you know, it was uh, basically the machines, you know, took over and started like fighting against humans. And so cars <laughs> were running you over like, like randomly or some, you know, the machine that we built to like help get us coffee started like drowning us in the tub. Or, oh, know. my gosh. Uh, and I think Elon Musk is putting us uh, on the road toward maximum overdrive. Yes. Well, um, Elon Elon said this week that uh, the robot, we, we should be able to outrun it and we should be able to overpower it. He doesn't sound confident of either of those things, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, obviously uh, something we need to be concerned about. Um, Jason, I've got to run. I really yes. appreciate your time as always, man. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you to all of our viewers. If you like what you saw, if you didn't like what you saw, uh, subscribe, uh, like the video anyway, and uh, certainly watch us on Facebook, watch on YouTube yep. and anywhere podcasts are found. We're going to continue to have these amazing left, right conversations. And we encourage you to have conversations with your neighbors of all political stripes and not swing on each other. Sit there, have good conversations uh, and, you know, assume good faith because we're all Americans, or even if you're not an American, uh, have those conversations and let's talk. Peace.